If you would, open your Bible to Exodus chapter 20. We're in the midst of this great passage where God revealed what we call the Ten Commandments. In the Hebrew text, you can call it the Ten Words that were given by God to Israel, speaking audibly from Mount Sinai. Don't forget that. That as the presence of the Lord was manifest on Mount Sinai with a cloud and with fire and with earthquake and with thunder and with smoke and with a trumpet blast that sounded from heaven, God from heaven spoke these words to Israel. Verse 1, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself the carved image of any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son nor your daughter nor your male servant nor your female servant nor your cattle nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not cover your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox or his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. These words spoken by God to heaven came down not as the ten suggestions, not as the ten good ideas, not as the ten voluntary initiatives, but the ten commandments. God fully intended that Israel take these commandments and not only keep them for themselves, but to distribute them to all of humanity to be a guardrail, to be a mirror, and to be a guidebook for humanity. And yet when we come to the text here, we notice that these commandments are organized, you could say, into two groups. Therefore, we talk about the two tables of the law. The first table of the law contains the first four commandments, which have to do primarily with man's relationship to God. The second six commandments have to do primarily with man's relationship to man. And last week we took a look at the first four commandments. Today we're going to take a look at the next six commandments. So here we are, verse 12, the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. It's simply said, isn't it? Verse 12, honor your father and your mother. Now, this command is wise and it's good because honor for parents is an essential building block for the stability and the health of all society. 
If younger generations are constantly at war with older generations, there's an instable society that cannot last long. So we take it seriously. To honor our parents means to prize them. It means to care for them. It means to show respect and reverence to them. And the commandment is given to children, but it's not only for little children. It's for us who are adults as well. The commandment abides that we should honor our father and our mother. Now, the Bible teaches that there's many ways in which some kind of honor is due in human relationships. You see, there's honor due in relationships in the home. There's honor due in relationships in the community. There's honor due at the workplace. There's honor due between the citizen and the government and among people in the church. And all of those are important. But I'll tell you this, the foundation's here. If this one is destroyed, all the rest of them cannot last. If there's not a fundamental respect within the natural hierarchy that God has placed within the home, then everything else crumbles. And we need to respect this and give reverence to it. And I'll say this as well. Blessings. Blessings to many of you who keep this commandment in exceedingly difficult circumstances. You're caring for an aged parent. And you're taxed by it. It's, it, it. It stretches you to the extremity in a way that you never knew it would. God bless you for your love and your faithfulness. And, and I don't know anybody who endures that kind of long-term difficulty in caring for an aged parent. Whoever feels that they did it perfectly, that, that they always responded with the grace and the goodness that they should. But I want to encourage you and I want you to know that God looks down from heaven and he smiles upon it. That the sacrifice you make is pleasing unto the Lord. And even if nobody else understands and nobody else really gets it, how much you have to give, not just from your time and your body and maybe your money, but just from the the, the, the emotions of your soul to care for your parent, God sees it from heaven and he honors you for it. Bless you for that. And then he says here that your days may be long upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You know, most pointedly, this had to do with Israel coming into Canaan. And I think what he's saying is this. If you guys don't have this fundamental honor between a child and their parent, your society won't last. I could give you the promised land. I could bring you into Canaan. But if you don't have this foundational building block, it won't last. Many people have paid the high price that rebellion and disrespect towards their parents has cost them. The next commandment, verse 13, very simple. You shall not murder. You know, in the original Hebrew, it's only two words, not murder. Don't do it. It's clear and to the point, but you should know this, that in the Hebrew as well as the English, there's a distinction made between killing and murder. In other words, not all killing is murder. Murder is the taking of life without legal justification. What would be the legal justification for killing? Well, execution after due process. Capital punishment would be included under this. Or moral justification. Moral justification would be self-defense. There is a such thing as killing that is not murder. You see, researchers tell us that there's seven words in Hebrew that one might use to translate the idea of killing. But this particular word is the one that implies premeditation. It implies 
intentionality. And this is a very important distinction. You know, those who take this command serious are often very concerned about life in the womb. They want to protect it. They want to preserve it as much as they can. They'd like to see policies and ideas advanced in our society that advance the protection of life in the womb. And sometimes people say, well, how could you possibly be pro-life to put that tag on it? How could you be pro-life and also in favor of capital punishment? Ladies and gentlemen, this word clearly makes the distinction between killing and murder. And if capital punishment is carried out properly, it's quite within legal justification, doesn't violate this command at all. Now, I don't intend this morning to get into an extended discussion on capital punishment. I'd be delighted to discuss it with any of you more in depth. I mean, I think the Bible has a lot to say about it. All I want to make plain is this. This verse, Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, does not prohibit capital punishment in the slightest. It makes the clear distinction between killing and murder. Nevertheless, think how amazing it would be in the world today if this command were obeyed. What a difference. Think about how the blood of unresolved and un, uh, you know, uh, requited murders cries out to the Lord from our own nation. You know, it, if this command were obeyed, life in the womb would be protect, protected. If this command were obeyed, senseless murders wouldn't horrify the nation. As just happened in the last few days in Connecticut. I find it fascinating. I couldn't miss it. I mean, maybe you picked up on it already. How that terrible uh, evil done in Connecticut on Friday, it's a violation of these first two commands that we spoke of. That, that, That young man who committed that awful evil, the first thing he did was he killed his mother. Then he massacred a bunch of children. These first two commands that we look at violated right there. And our hearts and our prayers, they go out to the families and to the community in the aftermath of this horrific murder, this evil that was perpetrated in uh, Connecticut this week. But please, nobody should misunderstand me. I'm not meaning to imply for a moment that this community in Connecticut was some kind of ground zero for commandment breaking, and that that's why it happened. But nobody should mistake this. When we live in a community, in a culture that more and more thumbs its nose at God and his commandments, that more and more mocks those who honor God and try to keep his commandments, that more and more glorifies the breaking of those commandments, can we be surprised when more and more of those commandments are broken and in more and more evil and horrific ways? You know, we've talked about it several times on Sunday. I hope the image is in your mind that the law is like a guardrail for society. It keeps us on the road. And what we've done in a somewhat systematic fashion in our community, in our larger culture over the past many years is we've knocked down the guardrails. You don't need the Ten Commandments. You don't need a God-based morality. You don't need God at all. The Ten Commandments shouldn't have anything to do with public life or morality or anything. Get them out of the way. What, and then we're going to act like we're shocked when things like this happen? Ladies and gentlemen, this is just the trend. It, it, it can be no other 
until there's more and a more of a turning to the Lord God. That's the only answer for these things. Yet, there are many people when they see some infamous evil that's, that's spread abroad in the press, that's on the cable channels, you know, 24 hours. When something like that comes, it really makes people face difficult questions. They ask like this, well, where is God in the midst of this? Now, I understand the heart behind that question. It's someone who's reaching out to God in the midst of tragedy and sorrow. But nobody should think for a moment that God is somehow to blame for this. As if God was sleeping on the watch. God's been there all along. It's the culture that's thumbed their nose at him. And then they turn around and say, where was God? I'll tell you where God was. God was given the Ten Commandments. We were the ones not listening to them. But know this as well. Nobody should think that our Christian faith is some kind of sanitized faith that can't stand the dirt and the evil and the tragedy and the sorrow of this fallen world. I'll tell you something. Christianity was born into a world that knew evil and tragedy and sorrow on a scale that we can hardly imagine in our own culture. We rightly grieve and our hearts go out for the tragic death of some 30 people in Connecticut. And it's terrible. It's an evil tragedy. But I think of something that happened not far from Nazareth, where Jesus of Nazareth grew up. When Jesus was about 11 years old, there was a widespread rebellion against the Roman government centered in Galilee. And the rebels took control of a city named Sepphoris. It was only four miles from, Ga- from Nazareth, a very short distance from Jesus' house of residence. And in Sepphoris, when they launched this rebellion against the Roman government, the Roman legions responded and they crushed it. And when they crushed it, not only did they level the city of Sepphoris, not only did they kill so many innocents in overwhelming the city, not only did they take every surviving woman and child and sell them into cruel slavery, but they took 2,000 men from Sephoris. Some of them guilty, some of them innocent. They took 2,000 men from the city of Sephoris and they crucified them all along the roads in the area. There's an 11-year-old boy, Jesus, walking down the road and he sees hundreds of men hanging on crosses. He sees murder and injustice and evil on a scale that we would regard as almost unimaginable. And he realizes that God has given him the place to come in and to redeem society and to redeem men and women, to change a culture by changing individual lives, by bringing godly influence, by transforming things. And and are we not the inheritors of this? And so we we bless the name of the Lord, but we realize as people ask these dangerous or these, these, these despairing, I should say, they're not dangerous questions, they're despairing questions. Where is God in the midst of it? I'll tell you what we say. We answer back without hesitation. We say that Jesus is the answer. Jesus Christ brings comfort and peace in the most impossible circumstances. 
You know, you think about what some of those families in Connecticut are going through right now this morning and the great difficulty, almost unimaginable pain and sorrow that some of them must bear. We would look at them and say, Jesus Christ is the answer. I'll say this as well. Jesus is the answer in another sense. He's the answer in the sense that he will judge the guilty and they will answer to him for their crimes against his little ones. Make no mistake about it. Some people may think that in some case like this, where some evil man goes and he murders a bunch of people and then turns the weapon of his destruction upon himself so that he can be held to account in no human court of law, that somehow he's escaped justice, not for a moment. He hasn't escaped it at all, but rather he's been put into the hands of the ultimate judge, Jesus Christ himself. Jesus is the answer as well. Because when his love and his word are received and spread abroad in a society, such things don't happen or they don't happen with nearly the frequency. And Jesus is the answer because if our society rejects him more and more, don't pretend to be shocked at the results. Most importantly, Jesus is the answer to transform your heart and your life. Maybe there are some people here today, you, You have at some point in your life, you have in some way or another, you have violated this command in your action. I would say there's probably almost every person in this room, we have violated it in spirit. Because did not Jesus speak to us very directly and say that this commandment prohibits not only the action of murder, but the heart of murder. The heart of hatred and indifference the heart that would lead people to their own destruction, the heart that would condemn people to a hell if it could do it. No, Jesus told us, this commandment tells us not only not to murder, but also not to hate. We look at this and we go, Lord, I'm a commandment breaker. Verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. Boy, it's simply said, isn't it? Right there. I look at it and it's just five words. You shall not commit adultery. And clearly here, the act itself is condemned. God allows no justification for the ways that we creatively justify the breaking of our marital commitments. It's not to be done. And when it is done, it's sin. And you know what else it does? It damages. It's not a victimless crime. It damages. Now, the Bible does make the distinction between, uh, for example, in the Mosaic law, the punishment for adultery and the penalty for extramarital sexual relationships. They're different sins, but they're related. Here, most specifically, is the violation against the marital bond. You shall not commit adultery. And again, I'd just like you to consider for a moment, think of what it would be like if this command would be obeyed. What a different world it would be. Think how many attorneys would be out of business if this command were obeyed. (laughs) Now, if you look at this and you say, well, I haven't obeyed this commandment. You can repent. You can call it for what it is. It must be just by the law of averages that I'm speaking to people right now 
and, and you're in an adulterous relationship or you're on your way to one. If we were to sit down and discuss it over a cup of coffee and you tried to justify the reasons why, maybe it would fall into two categories. Maybe some of you, it's, it's frivolous. It's a curiosity. It means nothing. You're just, you're just hyped up with lust and with foolishness. Let's just call, it's just foolish. You're being foolish. And could I just say you're being foolish? Don't be foolish. Don't go on this path to your own destruction. Think of how much you have to lose. Don't be a fool. You, you, you think you can justify it in the name of novelty or curiosity or nobody will find out or I won't get caught. Don't be a fool. But then I think there's another group that, that you would talk to them about them and they would say, no, 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 I'm not being foolish. I love that person. You see, honestly, I just don't love my own spouse much anymore. That love seems to have gone cold. It's mundane. I don't want it anymore. But I want what I seem to have with this new person. There's a spark there. There's something amazing. And do you know what I would say to that person? I would say it as gently as I could, but I say it as, as firmly as necessary. I, I'd try to look him in the eye and I'd say, Jesus called you to lay aside lesser loves for his glory. I, I can't try to debate whether or not you really love that person. But I will tell you this, that if you'll obey Jesus, if you'll do what he said and lay down before him the things that, that dominate your heart and let him really be the Lord of your life in this area, God will bless you for it and God will honor you for it. You're on a path that will not lead to good, but only to error. Then we think about it, we think, wow, um, the New Testament spoke of this, Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount, not only in the act itself, but also in the heart that desired the act. And then we say, we're all covenant breakers. We're all guilty under this covenant. The New Testament puts it this way. It says in Galatians chapter 5, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, licentiousness. That pretty much covers it. That God has given a beautiful plan for the power and the greatness of sexual relationship, for it to be the power and the bonding force, or at least one of them, that bonds together this beautiful one flesh relationship that God intends in marriage. And when you take that power, when you take that force and put it outside of the bounds of marriage, it wreaks more destruction than anything else. So we say, God, God, here we are, covenant breakers. Would you please come and speak to our hearts? Verse 15, the eighth commandment. You shall not steal. You know what I find so amazing about these commandments? If we come back to that picture of a guardrail and just think, honor your father and mother, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal. These are absolute foundational building blocks for a healthy society. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a command that's extremely important to say you shall not steal because it basically lays out the right to personal property. It says that God has entrusted certain things to certain people. And if I take it as if it's mine, that's stealing. It's not mine. It's yours. So it belongs to you. If you give it to me, fine. But if I take it without permission, that's theft. Why is it theft? Because it belongs to you and not to me under God's ordinance. 
Don't steal. Think about how great it would be if this command were obeyed. Think about living in a community, once again, where you didn't have to lock your front door. Live in a community where you could park on the street, run into the store, and you leave your keys in the car. It's just no big deal. You don't have to worry about it. Oh, what a wonderful thing that would be. But I want you to think about this in another term. You see, we can also steal from God. Now, how do we steal from God? Well, of course, there's one sense in which we steal from God. And when we refuse to honor him with our financial resources. In Malachi chapter 3, that's spoken of very, difficult, very directly, where God said, you're robbing me if you don't honor me with what you have. Now, that's one way to rob God, but I'll tell you, there's an even greater way that we rob God. By refusing to give him ourselves for obedience and for his service. You see, this is the idea. We belong to him. We are his purchased possession. He bought you. He owns you. Stop acting like you own yourself. It's stealing from him. How about this one from 1 Corinthians chapter 6? He says this, For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God and in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You're bought with a price. He owns you, therefore give him your life. If you don't, it's a form of stealing. I like what it says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. Here's the real solution to stealing. It says this, Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he might have something to give him who has need. Wasn't that amazing? Here's God's solution for stealing. Working. Work. And then you'll have something not only to give restitution to those that you've stolen from, but to be a giver. You speak to any person, even if you're speaking to yourself, speak to any person who's a thief and there's shame in being a thief. Why don't you get beyond that shame and work with your hands so that God could say, no, that person is no longer a stealer. Now they're a giver. That's a beautiful transformation. The ninth commandment, verse 16. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now, the primary sense of this command has to do with the legal process. The idea is there you are in a court of law and evidence is being heard. And when you testify, you've got to tell the truth. And I think that it has its primary and most pointed application of that. But we could say this, could we not? That every day we speak in an informal court. Every day we speak in situations where what we say is taken seriously and truth or error matters are set before us and others to decide. So we can break this commandment in a lot of ways. You can break this commandment through slander. You can break it through tail-bearing. You can break it through creating false impressions. You, you can break it by questioning the motives behind someone's actions. You can break it by flattery. I'll tell you another way you can break it, by silence. Sometimes your silence is a lie because it creates a false testimony in somebody else. Think of what the difference would be if this command were obeyed. If we did that, not only the Old Testament, but the New Testament tells us to do. Look at it here. Colossians chapter 3 verse 9 says this. Do not lie to one another since you put off the old man with his deeds. We just told the truth. Lying and false representations, all that belongs to the old man and not to the new life that we have in Jesus 
Ladies and gentlemen, what a beautiful thing it is for us to walk in the truth of Jesus Christ. I like what Alan Redpath said on this point. He said, how very strange it is that we have come to think that Christian maturity is shown by the um, ability to speak our minds when really it's shown in the ability to control our tongue. That is, isn't it? When the prophet Isaiah had his heavenly experience and there he was before the throne of God and he recognized his great sinfulness, what did he say? He said, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Well, may God send that coal from his fire to touch what we say, that we would speak and represent the truth. The 10th commandment, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. You shall not covet. I find this fascinating because coveting is something that primarily happens in the heart, in the mind. I mean, murder begins in the heart and mind, but it's an action. The same with adultery, the same with theft. But coveting, that is something that happens in the heart and the mind. And God says, I care about that. I don't want you to be mastered by ungodly desires. That's what really the word means. It basically means to desire. And you shouldn't desire things that belong to other people because covetousness works like this. Our eyes look upon an object and then the mind admires it and then the will goes over to it and then the body moves to possess it. And just because you haven't taken that final step doesn't mean that you haven't started the first step in your heart and in your mind. And that covetousness, it's a wicked thing. It can be expressed towards all kinds of things, isn't it? He says they're your neighbor's house, his wife, his ox, his donkey, whatever. It all has the idea of an itch to possess what belongs to somebody else. And it communicates this, an essential dissatisfaction with what we have. And it's jealousy towards those who have something better. That's a terrible thing. It's a terrible thing when it's inflamed in the society, when covetousness and dissatisfaction is preached to us all over the place in our culture, in our society. Instead, God says, no, you shall not covet what your neighbor has. Jesus gave a special warning about covetousness, which explained the core philosophy of the covetous heart. Are you ready for this? He said this, take heed and beware of covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Isn't that one of the great errors of covetousness? You think that there's more life in things than there really is. Friends, no. The real source of life is God. It's in Jesus Christ himself. Listen, that's such an important verse. I'm going to read it again. This idea of covetousness, it is universal all over the world. Nobody should think that it's only the poor who are covetous or it's only the rich who are covetous. Everyone could be covetous. But if you would say this, should not this especially be read a second time in Santa Barbara? Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of things which he possesses. You heard it. You've been warned here. Your life does not exist in the things that you possess. It exists in Jesus Christ. You see, this is the great thing about that word that's translated covetousness here. At root, 
It's the word to desire, to pant after, to desire something strongly. And did you know that there are desires that God says, go for it with? But no, not desires that are covetous, that possess what other people have. Instead, why don't we begin with this? I'm not saying it ends with this, but let me begin with this. The desire after God himself. You see, haven't you done it your own way long enough? This life, imagine a life. It dishonors father and mother. If it doesn't commit the act of hatred, it has murder in its heart all the time. Committing adultery in one way or another. Stealing, bearing false witness, coveting everything. You look at that person. What a happy person, are they not? No, no. This is a person who has completely missed what God has for their life. And their life shows the pain of it. When you come down to it, these commandments, these commandments are good. How much better the world would be if just one of these commandments were obeyed? Just take one. Take one of the six that we've covered. Take one of the six and give it a 90% compliance rate in our culture. Wouldn't be a much better community to live in. These commandments also are helpful. God gave them for our good. He gave you these commandments not because he looked down from heaven, saw some people having fun, and said, i got to put a stop to that. God gave these commandments because he said, I know you. I know how I made you. I made you in my image. Your life is wired to live after the pattern of my moral perfection. This is the way you will have life and succeed. You depart from this. You go off on your own. And there's a lot of trouble and waste out there. Now, these commandments are helpful. This is the best way to live. This is the gift from God. But then I think these commandments were obeyed and fulfilled by only one person, by Jesus himself. Remember that one guy who came to Jesus and claimed that he had kept all the commandments? I wonder if Jesus laughed or if he had the divine miracle of holding back laughter at that moment. No, Jesus, Jesus was the only one who kept these commandments. You and I? No. I don't mean to be too rough on you, but I'll do it anyway. I'm looking out upon an entire room of commandment breakers. I look at one in the mirror all the time as well. But isn't it, isn't it amazing? We who have broken these commandments, we look to Jesus who never broke them, who kept them, who obeyed them, who fulfilled them in every aspect. And when Jesus Christ went to the cross, God treated the only commandment keeper as if he were the ultimate commandment breaker. And because the commandment keeper was treated as if he were a commandment breaker, we who put our faith and our trust in him, we are accounted as commandment keepers. Thank you, Jesus. So, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that this law is a guardrail for our society and our heart breaks as we see people tearing down that guardrail but to the best of our ability, we'll preserve it. 
We receive this law as a mirror that shows us our great need for Jesus. And we receive it as a guidebook that shows us your moral perfection. And we'll try to live as you've given us to live. Father, that's our prayer. I want to pray, Lord, with special um, fervency, God, for those who are, Lord, they're overwhelmed or they're almost overwhelmed right now with the strong sense that they've broken some of these commandments. They think, Lord, about, um, about a taking of life that they've been connected with. They think, Lord, about um, something they've stolen. They think, Lord, about an adultery they've committed. They think, Lord, again and again. And Jesus, all I can say is I pray that you would lead them and each of us to put our faith, our trust, our repentance in you, the commandment keeper, who was treated as a commandment breaker, so that we who had broken the commandments could find redemption in him. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for your presence among us and for the goodness of your word. We know that you are the answer. In Jesus' name.